This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil explore the significance of the first Republican debate, discuss Joe Biden's quiet but meaningful efforts to support the International Criminal Court, and close by pondering China's economic troubles and whether the threat posed by China has been exaggerated. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Politics Lab. My name is Phil Barker, and I'm a professor of political science at Keene State College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Bill Muck, who's a professor of political science at North Central College. Hey, Bill, how are you? I'm doing well. I was. It, it's hot, Phil. It's like 100 degrees here. It's humid. It's sticky. It's the. It was the first day of class, and um, you know, there's there's joy to be back on campus. But man, that humidity is rough. Now it's so it's nice and cool here. Uh, it's been like fall like in the 40s in the morning. But like I, Kelly and I talk a lot about like the, how it, when it gets hot here, there's like no infrastructure for it. Like is Chicago mm. prepared for like 100 degree temperatures or are you just like in a classroom that's like 95 degrees? No, we're sort of prepared because Chicago, you get the the both, right? So you get the really cold days, you get the hot days. So most people have air conditioning. Most college, you know, across the campus, we have air conditioning. It doesn't always work real well in certain spaces. Um, but they, I will say, like, they have this wonderful infrastructure in the city, too, where they're like, all right, if, it's, if your apartment doesn't have air conditioning, there's cooling centers all over the place, go to the library. I mean, so they're pretty proactive about that. Um, I think just because Chicago gets that extreme both ends, whereas you really generally get the cold, but don't get the heat, right? It, typically, yeah, but with this new the new world we're living yeah. in, like we have heat waves here and we've started having extreme weather. We're having like, you know, not tons of them, but tornadoes and stuff that was like unheard of. It's like, you know, in L.A. where they're having hurricanes. It's just it's we're like it's it's we're totally unprepared, like meaning the human species is totally right. unprepared for what's coming next. It feels like. No, I think that the last couple of weeks have demonstrated that. I mean, even like think about New Hampshire. Most people probably don't have air conditioning like you have no window units. Nobody has air conditioning built in that that is going to have to change. Right. Because it is is going to be hotter. It's going to be colder. I, you know, think about the rains and the water coming and the floods. It, it is it is going to be a challenge for the infrastructure. Well, that's all very uplifting, Bill. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> are you Harry? Are you happy to be back in class? Are you glad the semester's starting again? It's always, uh, you know, the anxiety of the beginning of the year is a lot because there's a lot of meetings and figuring things out. But once you get back in the classroom, that's always fun, right? I mean, you're meeting with new students, you're, you know, debating new ideas and discussing things. That's always fun. And that's sort of intoxicating being back in that academic environment. It's all the other stuff that kind of comes along with the opening of the school year that is not as much fun to me as actually getting back in the classroom and seeing the students. I to- totally agree. Like all the meetings and everything are yeah. brutal. But yeah, as I start thinking about my classes and putting syllabi together and all of that. And t- today I helped with like move in when all the first years are moving in. And it, that's it, like when you're actually interacting with the students and whatever. Yeah. That's, that's great. But it's it, uh, and you I don't start till next you know, week. Right? I still do what you don't start till next week. Yeah. Yeah. We've still got I've still got until Monday. So I've still got I'm just going to. I'm going to, you know, really savor these last like three days of summer that I have. <laughs> That's right. But they'll sneak a few meetings in and, and all that stuff, too, to kind of ruin those last few days. So, of course. Of yeah. Course. Well, but we uh, well, why don't you let's remind everybody how to stay connected with you. And then we've got a few other quick topics before we dive into the big topics. Yeah. So you can find all of our information on the politics lab dot com. Um, you can find all our old episodes. You can find uh 
information, contact information for Bill and I, all our social media is, is on there as well. But, uh, the key thing is that, um, for each of our old episodes and, and for this episode, we, uh, for, uh, if you go to the episode page, um, we have links to relevant articles. So, uh, this week we're going to talk about the, um, the Republican debate tonight. We're going to talk about an argument about the 14th amendment and whether it keeps Trump out of office. Um, we're going to talk about China, all of that stuff. There's articles relevant, uh, to those, um, topics that you can find, uh, links for on, on the politics Well, we've actually got some sort of breaking news. This happened this afternoon and we thought we'd spend just a minute or two talking about it, but, uh, the Wagner chief. So this is out of Russia, Yevgeny Prigozhin. This is the, uh, the guy who basically carried out a mutiny and insurgency against Vladimir Putin had troops running up towards, uh, towards Moscow a few weeks back. Uh, he, as of this afternoon, reports are suggesting he is listed among passengers upon a plane that crashed in, on just north of Moscow. Phil, this is just a coincidence, right? I mean, there's nothing more to make of this, just a random event where somebody who tried to, to move against Putin is suddenly <laughs> potentially dead in a, in a plane crash. Total coincidence. <laughs> you know, they, they obviously, you know, we know they made up and, and reached this deal that everybody was happy with. And so nobody, nobody foresaw this at all. But no, no, I mean, this is like the, the, the brazen, I mean, I, who knows? I, there are, there are such things as coincidences, but the, the, the uh, frequency with which people who take on Vladimir Putin end up dead in quote unquote accidents is, is remarkable. And I mean, I, you and I talked about this when, yeah. when, when this, all ended that like his his life has to be limited i mean that's putin you can't like stand for this sort of thing um uh and so yeah i mean I, it'll be fascinating to see you know as this as investigations or whatever look into i don't will there even be an investigation i mean it happened in russia russia yeah. will quote unquote investigate right we'll we'll never know for sure yeah, you're right. They'll probably have some quick investigation. And the brazen is the right word because everybody knows what happened here, right? I yeah. mean, this is somebody who spoke out against him, uh, was critical of of the war effort, what was going on. Uh, you know, again, a mutiny is is generally not a good thing to do against Vladimir Putin. Uh, but it, it seems like Putin just doesn't care. He, he knows he's going to get bad press for this, but um, he nevertheless does it. And I'm trying to decide if it's a sign of weakness or not. I mean, I think uh, he is generally weakened compared to where he was a while ago. But this is it's such such a bizarre development. Yeah, I mean, I think it has to it it, it ultimately has to come from weakness, right? Because yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, leaders who are comfortable with their power or comfortable with the idea of losing power don't feel the need to assassinate uh, rivals, right? right? right. And right. so, I mean, uh, whether it's coming from a you know a, a sense of weakness in the sort of short term, it certainly comes from a larger sense of weakness in that he, like the idea that you can challenge Putin has to be shut down in some way because he's afraid of, of you know, what might happen, which is why he's eliminated like democratic rivals, people who have, have challenged him in terms of elections. And it's why he's working to eliminate, you know, he's, he's eliminated largely the free press. He's working to eliminate uh, military rivals, all of that. That's, I mean, that's, it's, yeah, it's, it's weakness in some form. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a joke how many people have fallen out of windows in Moscow who are, you know, spoke out journalists or, or officials against Vladimir Putin. Um, there's just it's, it's sort of like a mafia state in that way where he's the he's the kingpin and he does whatever he needs to do to keep himself in power. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be. It'll, I mean, it's I. who knows how everything will play out there, but it doesn't feel like uh 
Putin is operating from a real position of strength right now. No, no. So and the other other bit of news is, as you were telling me, tomorrow Donald Trump is, is heading down to Georgia and he's going to turn himself in. Is that right? Yeah, supposedly. And, and I guess Rudy Giuliani did today um, with like a hundred and fifty thousand dollar bond or something okay. like that. He's he's there. Um, but uh, yeah, Trump is is apparently going tomorrow on the heels of. So tonight's the Republican debate. Tomorrow, the the leading Republican candidate is showing up uh, to be um, arraigned, I guess. So uh, this is, you know, getting to be whatever old hat, I guess. This is the however many times he's done this. Apparently, I'd read I saw some reports that he's getting increasingly, you know, grumpy about having to do this but uh uh yeah i mean this is you know this is all the the, the all those people that were indicted on the racketeering charges and whatnot are now being brought forward so it is an inconvenience when you have to turn yourself in to be booked i mean it just really can break <laughs> up a day so <laughs> well maybe that's that's a good transition into our first topic you want to you want to lead us in yeah yeah let's so so tonight we're gonna um Talk about uh, the fact that for the first time in nearly eight years, we're going to have a debate amongst Republican candidates for president. Um, so eight contenders will take the stage tonight, uh, but Donald Trump will notably be absent. Um, most people think that Trump is a shoe in for the nomination, but Interestingly, as we as we head into this debate this week, there were a number of articles that argued that an eventual Trump nomination may not necessarily be a done deal. So uh, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu wrote an op-ed. So Sununu, who's been, you know, sort of, a, I don't know, he's more of kind of an old school um, uh, Republican. He wrote an op-ed for The New York Times arguing that, quote, the floor of Trump's support may be high but his ceiling is low. So he, he pointed out that in states where voters are actually paying attention to the primary states like New Hampshire and Iowa. So we're getting, I, I don't know, you're probably not seeing anything in Chicago yet, but no. tons of ads here for all the, the Republican primary people who, you know, most Americans have never heard of. So in places like New Hampshire and Iowa, Trump's numbers aren't actually faring as well as they are in national polls. Um, in fact, in New Hampshire, more than 50% of Republican voters want someone other than Trump. So it's a new, new pointed out that it's been five months since Trump's been above 50% in, in any of the polls. Um, the problem that Sununu points out is, is much as it was eight years ago, uh, in that there is a fractured field of numerous candidates that are splitting the vote. And so, you know, Sununu is arguing that if Republicans can settle on an opponent to get, you know, to take on Trump, they might have a chance. But the way we're moving forward, it's going to go like it was um, eight years ago. Uh, Ronald Brownstein in The Atlantic also argued that Trump is beatable in Iowa. But he also argues that the path to victory there through strong evangelical support, which has happened um, in, a number of times in previous <laughs> primaries where, where people who weren't leading in national polls managed to do well there, that taking that approach might actually hinder candidates in a broader election. And then uh, you and I have kind of been texting about this. There's the, there are these larger constitutional questions. So a number of legal scholars, including two prominent conservatives, have recently argued that Trump is ineligible to serve again based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which states that no one can be elected who, quote, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. And, and these, these legal scholars uh, also argue that it isn't necessary for Trump to be convicted in order for him to be barred from office via the 14th Amendment. So, so Bill, there's a lot going on. Let's talk about the Republican yeah. primary. Is the, I mean, there's, there's so many levels to this. On one level, is the debate worth watching tonight? You know, what role does Trump play in this process, even as he's absent and absent? And then, you know, is there any way that we don't, you know, a few months from now in 
end up with Trump as the nominee? Is is Sununu naive? Are the Fourteenth Amendment, you know, scholars are are they naive? Where where do you want to yeah. start with this? Well, let's start with the debate and whether it's worth watching. And and I'm torn on this because, um, you know, Donald Trump is obviously good for ratings. He's always entertaining, albeit destructive for the dem- democracy. Um, I, I'm kind of wondering what is going to happen in his absence. And my guess is nobody other than maybe Asa Hutchinson or maybe Chris Christie are going to even mention or go after Donald Trump, right? They're, they're still sort of unwilling to put any kind of pressure on the former president. My guess is that the focus is going to be on Ron DeSantis, right? So all of these third tier candidates, and I think you can describe all of them as third tier, are going to try to pull DeSantis down. It, it strikes me this is a battle for second place. And whoever is that second place candidate is just going to hope that Donald Trump goes to jail, that Donald Trump dies, <laughs> that something extraordinary happens that removes him, not the democratic process, something else removes him from the primary. Because they, they all seem to just have sort of accepted and conceded that nobody can beat him head on. Now, this the, the, the arguments, you know, the Sununu arguments are interesting, but I still remain a little skeptical. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I guess I'd want to see it in the votes first, right? Is, the, is there real traction there? And if that happens, then maybe so. Um, but as we've talked about in the past, you know, there's like 35 to 37 percent of the Republican electorate that is just all mega. They are all in on Donald Trump. And there's another 35 to 37 percent that is persuadable. Um and there's only about 25% that's against Trump. So, you know, you really have to have, it's that, you know, the middle chunk has to drift over to the anti-Trump position. And I, at this point, I remain skeptical given all of the things that have happened that haven't moved the needle. But but these guys are on the ground, right? They're seeing what's happening in Iowa and they're seeing what's happening in New Hampshire. So maybe they've got a pulse in a way that that me in Chicago or I don't have. Well, you're you're in New Hampshire. What do you what do you see? Do you think there's a chance that Trump isn't as strong as as the national polls poll suggest? I mean, yes, I think there is something to, I mean, so there is a, so, I mean, the answer is yes and no. On one hand, there's a, there's a history of people sort of coming out of nowhere and doing really well in place or people that that weren't getting a ton of national attention who do really well in New Hampshire and Iowa, because what, what you have to do to be successful in New Hampshire and Iowa, it's very much an organization game, having, having volunteers and people who are who are actively going out and, and trying to get out the vote. But it's also a lot about um, uh, just kind of grassroots politics. Like, I mean, there's this long tradition of candidates showing up and going to diners and, and it seems silly, yeah. but it's kind of an interesting test. I mean, I, you know, I, as, as I watched the democratic primaries and the candidates come through four years or four years ago, there were, uh, there was the, um, uh, we talked about, uh, you know, you could learn a lot about a candidate by their organization, meaning by who, you know, who they chose to surround themselves with and how organized they were. And so, so I, you know, I think, you know, Jimmy Carter sort of surprised people when he did well in New Hampshire. And so I, so I think it's possible for someone to do that in, in New Hampshire and in Iowa. I, I think it, it makes sense that maybe Trump's numbers look slightly different in New Hampshire and in Iowa than they do um, nationwide. But I also think, you know, when I, when I get to, you know, when you're talking about what Sununu's arguing, I, I think in a, in an ideal world, 
in which there were some other candidate that that could take on Trump, someone who was, uh, you know, a, a as big of a name, as big of a personality as Trump, then yeah, I think Trump could be defeated. But the, the, what he's hoping is that one of these kind of eight people, most of whom nobody really has heard of, or if they've heard of them, it's Chris Christie, who feels like he's, you know, in the past. Um, and, and, or they're, you know, these small state governors that people haven't, haven't, don't know anything about. The idea that one of them is going to sort of solidify the party and take on Trump seems laughable to me. And so I, I, I think we are headed down the road of, you know, and and I think you know the the Ron DeSantis of the of the world, or the Ron DeSantis of the world yes. specifically, is notoriously bad at the Iowa and New yes. Hampshire style politics. Yes. He's like awkward and kind of. We've talked about you know eating pudding with his fingers and like he just <laughs> he doesn't seem to like that part of that kind of retail politics sort of stuff. And so, um, I you know I just don't see anyone in this group emerging. And Trump's name, Trump is so good at kind of absorb or taking up so much space that it's hard for me to imagine anyone getting a whole lot of traction. And again, maybe this is where Trump is smart, because I think, you know, a lot of people might have tuned into the debate if Trump were there. But, uh, you know, who's going to tune in to watch a race for for second place, which is what it it, it certainly um, seems like. And Weirdly, to go back to what you said, I, I think the key to to sort of standing out in some ways is to go after Trump. But all of the, you know, uh, the, the all these candidates are sort of trying to reimagine themselves as the next coming of Trump, as opposed to saying, you know, we we need to take a different direction. Like someone like Chris Sununu taking on Trump might have, you know, been able to do that uh, more effectively. But I think it's telling that he isn't. I think he'll run for office, run for president someday. But he's not willing to take on Trump right now. <laughs> there, right? Because that's a, that's, you know, it's almost a self-sacrifice to do that. It is. And it's interesting. Like, I I think a lot about Ron DeSantis and whether he squandered an opportunity, right? So he could have, now let's, let's assume he had a better personality, Um, but he was in a good position. And and a lot of people thought he would run initially to the center uh, and say, okay, we'll let Trump have the more extreme vote, but let's run a, a centrist campaign, talk about the good work you've done in Florida, you know, and you could even kind of play up the the COVID stuff that you opened responsibly and did all that. I mean, that sort of a, a solution-based campaign. Now, but they've got smart people and they all decided that the only way you beat Trump is to out Trump Trump, right, to be the truly anti-woke candidate. And so that's why he's off even further to the right of Trump, which also seems like a really bad strategy, because why does somebody want the cover band when you can have the original artist? And um, so it's it's hard to know. And I the thing is, like these campaigns seem like they're making poor choices, but they've got smart people there that are doing good polling. And so it must suggest that they're you know, they don't see a, a centrist campaign being effective at all. Which is remarkable because, I mean, you're right. The thing that brought Ron DeSantis sort of to the national spotlight was policy successes, right? Whether you like his policies or not, like you said, it was it was his handling of COVID. It was like a number of different things that sort of made him this kind of rising star in the party. But that's not what he's run on at all. Like he hasn't taken he's he's gone full on culture wars in, in his <laughs> approach. And and I think the end result is that he's made himself a pretty I mean, not even not very effective at again he's he's trying to be a better ver- like he's trying to out trump trump which he's never going to do and in trying to do that, he he's like maybe guaranteed himself second place in the Republican primary, yeah. but he's destroyed his national ambitions, you know, in the in the process because he's just seems loony as opposed to being, you know, someone who 
who says I'm I'm a, a, a conservative, and I, I what that means is you know I you know small government and and you know yeah. reasonable change and stuff like that. Instead, he's gone all in on wokeism and and who knows you know whatever else. It's I mean I guess it does tell you about where the Republican Party is yeah. I guess, but. I, I, I can't help but feel, I know that there are people doing smart people doing polling and whatnot, but I can't help but feel like there's also this sort of lack of faith in the Republican base. Yeah. I think there's a lot of Republicans who would very much go for a, you know, reasonable govern like governing approach as opposed to the culture war stuff. But it's, it is really, really something to see. And again, it strikes me that they're all waiting for Trump to go away, which isn't a bad bet, right? I mean, the guy's facing four indictments. It is, it's possible that one of these will go to trial beforehand. I think it's almost impossible that more than one will. But but he could be found guilty. He could be going to jail. And then suddenly the Ron DeSantis strategy is a good one because he is, you know, the second Trump. But um, I don't know. There's so many contingencies there that it just so to, to, to circle all the way back to the debate. I don't think there's going to be much that's going to happen at the debate. I think we could kind of predict what everybody's going to say and do. And and tomorrow morning, there won't be that many really fascinating or important stories. You know, it'll be, I, I'll, I'll tune in for a little bit, I guess. But I mean, there were, there were some of the candidates who were saying they were doing no debate prep. Like they're just, yes. you know, it's, and I, it just seems, you know, ill-advised, but, uh, um, yeah. And I mean, if you're it, to kind of what you were saying a second ago, the, the whole idea of like, I'm going to bet on or hope for Trump ending up in prison. Um, I, it's even then like, that's not going to make Trump go away, right? Like no. there's nothing about Trump that says that even if he is convicted and put in prison, that he's going to say, well, I guess I'm done, right? <laughs> like he's going right. to, he's going to insist that, that, uh, he should be president and that people should be breaking him out of prison. So, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, he's, he's just not going away unless he dies. Yeah. He's not going away. Well, let's, let, should we transition to talk about this, this, uh, 14th amendment, uh, issue? Yeah. So this is I, this is a, a perfect thing for nerdy guys like us, right? I mean, so it is it is a couple, actually more than a couple, bunch of legal scholars now who are pointing to Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment to say that, hey, if you carry out, if you're an elected official and you carry out or are supportive of others' efforts to carry out an insurrection against you, you can't run for office, and that it, that states therefore are allowed to ban Trump from running for office. And so there's there's sort of the the legal theoretical argument, but then there's also the practical side of this where you are starting to hear stories, people suggesting that this is likely, that we're not really fully prepared for the number of states that might try to do this. Uh, I, what do you think about this, Phil? I mean, I, I kind of have some of my thoughts of my own, but what do, you, what do you think about this idea that the Constitution prevents the former president from running because he carried out an insurrection? I mean, I, so I, this is, I think this is a fascinating arg argument. And I think part of what's brought it forward is that the, the two sort of big names that are the two, the, the primary piece that people have been pointing to recently was done by two, you know, conservative legal scholars. They were Federalist Society people, I, yeah. I think. Right. So, so it, it's, this is not, uh, you know, this is not a bunch of liberals who are making this argument. These are people who, who have argued that they, and you and I were talking before we started recording, they've taken this kind of originalist approach to going back and, and looking at it. And, and the conclusion is, um, through this originalist lens that what the founders intended was that this, this, you know, I, I think, on the face of it, the idea that the 14th Amendment, and this wouldn't have been the founders, obviously, but the original intention was um, that uh, uh, 
on the face of it, the 14th Amendment, I think absolutely should, you know, keep Trump from running for office. If if you're trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, then you have like, you know, you have, uh, um, what, you know, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the constitutional order. I mean, I think that that fits. The question is, who gets to decide that and how yeah. is it carried out? And that's where these originalists have argued that like anybody can decide yes. that. Right? Like, <laughs> that was the original intent. That part is a little bit uh, out there for me. I like the idea that that there might be some sort of, uh, I, you know, I don't know, some sort of body. I, the, the idea of, you know, that seems to in some way go against the idea of innocent until proven guilty and all of that. <laughs> right. And so um, uh, I, I don't know how I feel about that. And I think there's a slippery slope there Definitely. in that um, if, you know, if, if state start deciding that, you know, that, uh, Donald Trump has, has engaged in insurrection. Um, and, and therefore they're not going to put him on the ballot, even if it's a valid thing, it's going to totally open the door to other States in the future saying that, yes. uh, you know, whatever Joe Biden has rebelled against the constitution because we don't like what he's doing. And so, um, we're not going to allow him on the ballot in Texas or, or whatever. And so that's, that's the problem. This is all about institutions for me, right? Like yeah. institutions yeah, yeah. and norms, and there has to be a history and, and some sort of system for doing this. It can't just be left up to random people and whoever is in charge of the ballot in Georgia gets to decide yes or no, Joe Biden or, or Donald Trump is, is on the ballot. But I, I, I mean, I, I think the constitutional argument is there and I think, you know, we should be talking about it. What what do you think? Yeah. So this is, this is an interesting one for me because you and I have talked in the past about originalism and the problem problems with originalism, right? That everybody can read into the original intent and the text that they, what they think is, is sort of the meaning there. And it's, it's open to all sorts of interpretations that can be interpreted again in a variety of different ways. It's just messy, but this one, is pretty straightforward. In some ways, it's the ultimate test of originalism because the Constitution is very clear-cut to say, if you do this, you can't run for office again. And so what's likely to happen is that, I don't know if a state's going to do it, but it could, it would ultimately end in front of the Supreme Court. And then this court, which is full of originalists, would have to look at this and come up with a ruling to say somehow, no, that's not really what they intended or that's not (laughs) what the words say. And you can't, right? I mean, the reality is the words are clear. The interpretation is clear. And and some have pointed to like one minor ruling, uh, judicial ruling, where they said, no, that's not really the case. But ultimately, it would be the Supreme Court weighing in on this. And now, don't get me wrong. I think it's messy. And like you said, the logistics of it, how... Who gets to decide this? Is it at the state level? And even at the state level, who makes that determination? All of which is incredibly messy, complicated, slippery slope. If abused, it could lead to very, very anti-democratic tactics. But if we are originalists, if we are textualists, the message is very clear. The Constitution says Donald Trump should not be allowed to run for office. And, um, you know, I, I, I think you can't do it just because the again, trying to implement that would be so dangerous and messy. And I'd much prefer the the demos to vote. But I don't know if we're originalists. It's clear. <laughs> well, I feel like the, the 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 court has shown that uh, original it's it's like biblical literalism in some ways. Right. It feels like yes. there's a sort of a picking and a choosing of what we're going to be originalist and what we're going to be you know literal about. So, I mean, from, you know, politics in, and law and norms, and they're all kind of, you know, they're all deeply intertwined. You know, yeah. law is politics and politics is law and all of that. So what? how would you, if, 
there's part of me that thinks it would be interesting to test this, right? To, to say, Hey, look this, the, not to test it, but like to reinforce the idea that like, if you, you know, lead some sort of insurrection against the, the, we're, we're going to keep you off the, off the ballot. Um, and so to, to kind of as yet another way of reinforcing democratic norms, like you test it and you take it to the Supreme court. And if they're originalists, they sort of uphold it or whatever. But there's another part of me that thinks there's a danger in that because I don't have faith that the Supreme court would uphold it. And if anything, you might end up sort of undermining or even weakening the argument against, uh, you know, insurrection barring you from the, from the, the, uh, from the office of the presidency or Senator or whatever else is listed. So I, so this is one of those where I, I think legal clarification is necessary, but I wonder if now is the wrong time to seek yeah. that legal clarification. No, I, I think that's a really, really interesting point, right? And and it, why it's not the right time or may not be the right time is because Donald Trump still has a large chunk of support across the country. It would be totally different if Donald Trump did what he did as president and then the public turned against him. So let's say his approval ratings were four or something like that, and he decided to run for president again. This would be a totally different conversation. And I think states would feel comfortable to say the Constitution is clear. He has been banned. Uh, But when there's actually some skin in the game, I think that's where states are going to be reluctant to do so because it really, you know, Donald Trump is a viable candidate who still has a large uh, section, you know, a large chunk of support across the country. But the the reality is if we step away from power dynamics, if we step away from, you know, the partisanship and the politics of it all, the Constitution is right. The founding fathers were saying, hey, somebody carries out an insurrection, especially thinking about not the founders, I should say those writing the document after after the um, after the Civil War were saying you can't run for office if you carry out an insurrection, if you carry out a, <laughs> an attack. You know, they, they were very clear about this. This is a bad idea to have somebody run again. And it is a bad idea. The idea that Donald Trump is allowed to run again is a terrible idea that those, you know, crafting this saw well in advance. Yeah, if we were a functioning system, we would have, you know, there there would be a process for clarifying yeah. this. Like you said, uh, Trump would be sort of an outcast. The 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 deep partisanship wouldn't stand in the way of clarifying this. People would stand united in protecting democracy. Um, and uh, uh, and but but this is also, I mean, this is where I think. Even where I think a lot of Republicans agree with, you know, that Trump's behavior is problematic, deep partisanship is so, I mean, it's just so powerful right now. And I also think this is where uh, populism is really dangerous, but it's often really effective. Like Donald Trump has, you know, fired up so many people that I think Republicans are unwilling to stand against him because of fear of, of, you know, this, uh, whatever, even if it's 30% of the Republican base. So it's, it's again, where, uh, you know, that, that those sorts of conversations are important to have, but it feels like we're not, and you know, maybe, maybe, you know, 10 years down the road, we'll be able to have some sort of hearing and, and discussion about how, you know, how do we move forward with things like impeachment and the 14th Amendment and whatnot, based on the last, you know, decade of American politics, but we're, we're not there right now. No, not at all. And and if, if the case were to go to the Supreme Court, I can't imagine the court would uphold it. But, you know, in that other scenario where Trump is 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 ostracized from the the country and the public and was getting five percent then the court i think would absolutely come back and say yes and here are the rules here's how we do it so again we see the the way in which this is oftentimes law and politics are are tied together yeah well should we on that note i mean should we keep talking about law but shift to the international realm 
Let's do it. Yes, yeah, so sort of like interesting developments here. So, Phil, we're the kind of podcasters who are so nerdy that we often notice developments that, while they don't get much attention in the news, are kind of a big deal. Uh, in particular, President Biden has quietly ordered the U.S. government to begin sharing evidence of Russian war crimes in Ukraine with the International Criminal Court, located in The Hague, the Netherlands. Since the International Criminal Court was created by the Rome Statute in 1998 to investigate war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, and aggressive war, both administrations, Democrats and Republicans, have viewed it with skepticism and sometimes open hostility. For instance, during the Trump administration, uh, the United States government imposed sanctions on the international ICC prosecutor. And going back to 2002, the Congress passed and George W. Bush signed what is often dubbed the Invade the Hague Act. That law authorized the use of military force to liberate any American held by the court uh, in the Hague. Additionally, the United States has been supportive of an international center in The Hague more recently this is, uh, during the Biden administration to specifically support the effort to hold senior Russian leaders for the crime of aggression resulting from the country's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the International Center for the Prosecution of the Crime of Aggression Against Ukraine is the latest step in the concerted worldwide effort to hold the Russian leadership criminally responsible for its war in against Ukraine. Phil, this is a rather dramatic development. Uh, on the international justice front that isn't getting a lot of attention. Given the U.S.'s historic feet dragging on any effort at global justice, should we see this as a big deal? Absolutely. This is a big deal. I mean, this is the United States has been one of the biggest opponents of the ICC um, from its beginning. I mean, going back to, you know, when even under the Clinton administration, like we, you know, as we negotiated, as the ICC was being negotiated in Rome, um, the U.S. signed the treaty, not because we ever intended to be a part of it, but just so we could be a part of the negotiation process, the 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 um, uh, process of creating the ICC to help structure it in ways that we felt comfortable with. So, I mean, this is the, this is the, the paradox of global power, right? This is the, the, or this is the, the danger with the American approach. Um, whenever we are out invading countries, uh, you know, when we're invading Iraq and engaging in, you know, quote unquote, enhanced interrogation and whatnot, we want to do whatever we can to undermine any sort of international effort to hold people accountable for those things. But then it turns around and, and we're not the ones doing it. (laughs) And Russia is, and we've very much want to see, and Vladimir Putin should be held accountable for this. And and the, the institutions, the International Criminal Court is is it, its hands are somewhat tied precisely because of countries like the United States who have worked to undermine this. So the U.S. has had this very long um, uh, uh, record of. Sorry, my phone. <laughs> my phone's ringing in the middle of our podcast. You couldn't hear that, could you? No, I can't hear it. Okay. Do <laughs> you think it's really so re- ringing, or do you think you're kind of losing you're losing your mind? Well, it's and, possible. Like, phones are ringing. one is possible. But <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, I mean, so the U.S. has a long history of opposing this, and and uh, you know, really every administration has. So it is a huge deal for Biden to start to do this. I, I think it is also why Biden is doing it quietly, right? Yeah. Because this is not something that is popular with with the. I feel like. The American people don't know what the ICC is. They don't understand it. But the notion that some other entity out there might hold Americans, you know, accountable for what they have done or what they are doing um, doesn't sit well with Americans. So, you know, Biden's trying to walk this tightrope where um, he, you know, we we want to support international efforts to hold Russia accountable. 
but those efforts outside of that narrow context are not popular with Americans or with the American administration. So I, I say kudos to Biden. And I think this is the sort of thing where um, there is the possibility that, um, you know, supporting it here helps kind of snowball further support for, you know, that the U.S. Yeah. might might pursue in future years. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, it would be great if we were doing it boldly, if the American people were, you know, fully behind this notion of creating a court that could hold uh, Russia and, and Vladimir Putin accountable. But this is this is a, this is a good first step. And it's certainly, you know, worlds better than than the U uh, U.S. that has in, as it has in the past refused to cooperate. Not only did we refuse to cooperate with the ICC, we've refused to sort of deal with and uh, other countries who were cooperating with the ICC. Our animosity has been so great. So yeah, any warming is positive. And I, and I think this is a massive story that's not getting a whole lot of a whole lot of uh, coverage. I, what, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said, right? It's a it's a big deal. Um, it, it exposes the the difference between American values and ideals and oftentimes its practices. So, you know, we, we say that we should, you know, states should be held accountable for aggressive war and war crimes and crimes against humanity as long as it doesn't involve us. Um, and this is, you know, what's interesting to me about all this is that the Congress is on board, right? So you've got bipartisan support putting pressure on the Biden administration to say, release this information. If this is going to help us prosecute Vladimir Putin, we've got to do this. Um, you know, this is the same same Congress that uh, passed the uh, invade the Hague Act, right? Which said, no, right. we can never do this. And now I think the reason they're having that perspective now is because they're thinking about somebody else, as you noted, and not the United States. But I wonder whether there might be a little bit of spillover, right? So, you know, you start to support the institution, even if it's only sharing information. You know, that can lead to other cooperative efforts. And I don't think there's ever in the near future going to be a time when the United States will join the ICC, even though I think it would be a great, great role for the United States. I do feel like it's at least going to develop a more friendly relationship with the ICC. Now, that's assuming that Donald Trump doesn't get reelected, in which case, again, you know, there will probably put sanctions on the whole, whole team over there. But but no, I, I, I think this is a really quiet but important international effort. Now, that being said, I think you're right that the public isn't paying attention to this. Um, and a quick anecdote about this. I was on the radio yesterday, and so I was doing WCPT and talking with Joan Esposito. And toward the end of the interview, she asked about what you and I are doing on the podcast. And I I mentioned this topic. I said, we're going to talk about this and it's not getting a lot of attention, uh, but we think it's a big deal. And so then after that, she had a caller call in who wanted to talk about Trump or something. But the caller reamed me a new one about this. This is terrible. <laughs> International justice is awful. And this this guy was liberal and he was talking about all the injustices of the, the Bush administration and the torture. And, you know, we're, we have, we're total hypocrites. And, and my, my response is yes, but this is still an important first step to re-engage even if you're you know even if you're not perfect at home you can focus on your own faults and also think about having a conversation internationally but but you can see this just touches people off they get so so upset about it whether they're liberal or democrat they tend to hate this idea of, of global justice yeah, it is really fascinating. This idea that other people would be able to sit in judgment of us yeah. is, is something that, that does not sit well. And I think that comes from, you know, as as a world power, as you know, a country that has been arguably the world power for, uh, you know, 75, 80 years at this point, there was not a need for like we didn't need uh, an international criminal court the way lots of other countries did. Although, you know, it, it, its roots even I mean, the ICC's roots lay at the end of World War Two yeah. with this recognition that some 
something had to be done about Nazi leaders, um, and there were no institutions in place to hold Nazi leaders accountable. They hadn't violated, you know, German laws at the time, and so the, the idea of how do you hold people accountable is kind of what gives, you know, uh, uh, the, leads to the birth of this idea. Um, you know, I, it is it, it it's it is a weird thing to think about how you know we we think that there should be this international standard for justice, and, and I think most Americans, if you went through the stuff that is listed as illegal yes, under the ICC, yes. would would say yes, that should be illegal. Genocide should be illegal. You know, uh, forcibly di- you know displacing children should be illegal. Like these are things that are wrong, and people should be held accountable for them. But the idea that we would be that someone else would get to hold us accountable if we did those things is is what doesn't sit right with us and and that's you know it is it is hypocrisy but again you know there has to you know we, we've talked about this with people in the past people who had been on you know supportive of Trump and then backed away from just like same thing like there has to be room for improvement right if you say yeah. that well you didn't support it in the past so you can't support it now then there's no future for the ICC like what we want is for the US to say yeah we you know we shouldn't have been doing the stuff that we did 20 years ago in the in the war on terror and and uh you know we'll agree not to do it and and yeah. we will so agree to not not to do it that we will are willing to subject ourselves to someone who can hold us accountable right yes. um and so uh, yeah, and and I am hopeful that you know I, I think the other part of this. One of the things we know about institutions is that institutions sort of help socialize. And and I think this is one of those things that if the U.S. actually cooperates in this instance, if it matters to the U.S. to hold Russia accountable and we cooperate in some way with the ICC or a special tribunal in some way, um, what we might realize in that process is, hey, this the system works and it makes yes. sense. And there are safeguards. There are tons of safeguards in the ICC. Like if the U.S. just holds its own people accountable, then they won't end up at the ICC. Oh, the biggest safeguard of all is if you just don't commit war crimes, you're right. not going to end up before the ICC. So, I mean, there's all sorts of protections in place, um, you know, that that kind of keep the U.S. from, you know, being essentially, uh, you know, false accused of stuff. And so if we work in that process and we see the, the, you know, the meticulous way in which ICC prosecutors put together cases, I mean, the, the stuff they're doing, gathering information and, you know, uh, uh, video recordings and all sorts of other stuff, trying to document crimes against humanity and war crimes that have been going on. Um, I, I think if you see that and you realize kind of the professionalism of it, the, 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 the morality of it, um, I think that that, can also help strengthen American support for um, for an institution like this as well. And you, you're not quite so afraid of the ICC abusing its power when you've seen the ICC do what it does and do it well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you talk about institutions there. I mean, and the design of the ICC, it is intentionally designed to protect sovereignty as long as states do what they're supposed to do. You know, the, the, you and I talk about this in our classes, the idea of complementarity. The ICC only gets involved in investigation if a state is unable or unwilling to investigate itself. So it can investigate and find, you know, that there is no case here. That still counts, right? So it's it's a good faith effort. So there's a lot of ways in which you can continue to have domestic justice, but also have international justice. And, and in that way, I think that Joe Biden, by at least sharing some information is hopefully bridging that gap a little bit and creating some space there. And, and you know, the other thing, I mean, we didn't talk about this, but this, the war of aggression, 
you you alluded to this early on, the ICC can't investigate that because the only way when they came up with a definition and the rules for when they can investigate aggressive war is if both if, if the party is a member of the ICC and the United States was Im- valuable in that conversation to say that's the way it was going to be. So it means that when Russia invades Ukraine, Russia is not a member. Uh, Ukraine is not a member, even though they've granted jurisdiction. It means you can't you can't hold Russia accountable for aggressive war at the ICC. So now they're doing all these legal, you know, jumping through hoops, trying to find another place where you could, you know, carry out a case of aggressive war against Russia. Whereas if you just did it the right way and you just weren't a hegemon always trying to push and bully countries and pursue your own self-interest, the United States would be in a much better position to help the ICC prosecute Vladimir Putin for a clear case of aggressive war. I mean, it's again, these ideals and practices oftentimes get pushed in different directions. We spent we've spent over the past, you know, 25 years, so much time, effort and money trying to essentially neuter the ICC's ability to ever hold America accountable for its actions. If we had just put that much time and effort into help building a strong, legitimate institution, like, you know, that that is not going to be abusive of its power. Like, imagine yes. where, where we would be, right? I mean, it, it, it really is. And, and the end result is, I mean, the, the same things that... Uh, that um, that make the U.S. like the the reason the U.S. is so reluctant to you know uh, participate fully in the ICC is because we are this massive world power who like we do kind of whatever we want right we have yeah. a long history of doing whatever we want and and you know good bad and and otherwise but that's also in many ways the reason why the US shouldn't be so concerned about the ICC right i mean i like the, the you let that you support the ICC if the ICC ever actually came after the US for, on you know false grounds the US doesn't have anything to worry about in the way that you know smaller countries do so it, it just feels like it's one of those things where there's a lot to gain and not that much to lose by supporting the ICC and we're seeing that play out right here. If we had been on board, how much more powerful the international community response to Russian aggression, you know, would be right now if the U.S. hadn't spent 25 years undermining the ICC. That's right. Right. And one quick story before we jump on. But, um, you know, recently, so the ICC has arrest warrant out for Vladimir Putin for basically kidnapping children and bringing them across the border. And Putin was supposed to attend a meeting of, of the BRICS, the, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa in South Africa. And the heads of state are there except for the Russian head of state. And this suggests that the ICC does have some teeth right there, you know, that that South Africa felt uncomfortable with Vladimir Putin coming because it would meant that they would have been in violation of the agreement that they're party to before the Rome statute. So, I, you know, I think there is something to international justice. It doesn't always work perfectly, but I think that was, you know, that's an important sign that that it is having an impact on, you know, on some of these individuals. Yeah. And, and the other part is, I, I think it's easy to you know, I, I've taught at the at the Summer Institute on on genocide prevention, and and you know, I feel like people who are involved actively in trying to prevent atrocities are deeply skeptical of the ICC as well because they yeah. feel like it's it, it, it's sort of hopeless. Um, and I think it's you know, it's also important to remember that things evolve and get better, right? So I mean, yeah. this it, it, it's the ICC is is more effective and powerful than it was when it was formed 25 years ago. It you know, it originally it didn't even have a definition of aggression, and as it continues to, you know, the longer it's around, the the, the more it does, the more effective it will become. Um, and so, uh, yeah, if, if you're unhappy with the ICC, then you work towards making the ICC better. You don't just give up on the on the notion. So, 
that's that's absolutely right. Well said. All right. Well, let's let's transition for our final topic. Uh, we're going to take a look at the recent economic and demographic troubles experienced by China. Uh, there's been a lot written about it lately, and, and Phil has posted a Washington Post article uh, that provides a quick take, a bunch of quick takes uh, of some really smart people kind of thinking about what, you know, how should we respond to what's going on in China right now? So let's start with some data on the democratic demographic decline, and I'm going to read you some of this data. So last year, the country's population, China's population, fell for the first time since 1961. And from here on, China's demographic decline will accelerate. The United Nations projects that the country's headcount will plummet from today's 1.4 billion to below 800 million people by the century's end. Uh, you have to go back to the plagues and famines of the late medieval period to find a loss of population so severe. And now the economic story. So youth unemployment has been skyrocketing with the jobless rate for those ages 16 to 24 hitting an all-time high of 21.3% in June. It's gotten so bad that the Chinese government just suspended the data series altogether. <laughs> um, you know, basically, they're like, this data is not good. We're no longer going to provide this data. Uh, the Chinese leadership has basically told young people to stop whining and ratchet down their expectations. Uh, President Xi has said young people must learn to, quote, Eat bitterness. So I'm going to start working that phrase into emails where I deliver bad news, right? It's time to eat some bitterness. So um, uh, Lawrence Summers, a previous Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton, has written that China's economy has hit a wall and that U.S. gross domestic product will likely exceed China's for another generation. Um, now, this isn't to say that China is going away, just that China is experiencing some significant economic challenges, challenges that will no doubt have an impact on the balance of global power and the operation of the international economic uh, and political order. Now, before we all celebrate, uh, we thought it was worth spending some time thinking through all of the implications of this development, uh, many of which are more complex than initial, one might initially think. So, so Phil, what do, you, what do you make? I mean, there's a lot been written about China and, and demographic, economic problems, political problems. Uh, what do you make of all this? I mean, I think this is fascinating. This, it, it feels like, uh, you know, the... the the, the demographic and economic problems are are intertwined, right? I mean, yeah. in some ways, what China is, the, the demographic decline is like mind boggling <laughs> to, to see a country's population cut almost in half w without like an intervening, you know, not, not through plague or whatever, just through yeah. largely through policies, right? So, so, you know, one of the things you see as countries develop economically is this, I, this idea of like a demographic transition, right? Whereas countries get wealthier, mortality rates decline, um, you know, people, people live longer longer infant mortality decreases there's better health better food better you know health care all of that stuff means the population booms and then what happens you know a, a couple of generations later is that birth rates also decline and so that you have this boom and then they plateau and a lot of countries you know, this is what's the, the what Europe has been struggling with for a while where the birth rates have declined to the extent that populations are declining and you have these kind of geriatric states right where they're having a hard time supporting all of their social programs because because the the you know the the older population is so big and the working population has sort of shrunk China through its own policies has like exacerbated has created this like really dramatic version of that right where the the you know the one child policy and the sort of gender imbalance the 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 imbalance of of you know male and female uh children there has has contributed to all of that but yeah i mean it, it it's it's remarkable to to see how how it all plays out and i and i think the the 
the the tendency, you know, again, like you said, is to think of, you know, as we've we've talked about a Cold War with China and the threat of China and all of this, and and it might be easy to feel like this is, you know, a, a victory. The U.S. has, you know, maybe won this economic battle with China, but this is where you know political science and economics comes in because we realize the deep, deep complexity of this. A, a country whose economic base and population collapses is not a stable country, and we're talking about a country that has been until very recently the largest country. In, in the world. Um, you know, it has, it has a massive economy. Um, as we saw in the pandemic, that the, you know, the level of, we, we live in a world where countries are so interdependent, right, economically and in every other way in terms of the supply chain and all sorts of other stuff that the collapse of the Chinese economy is not going to be isolated to China. It's not something you're going to be able to sit in America and sort of cheer on. You're going to feel it in, in so many different ways economically, but also politically, right? I mean, I think about how, um, uh, you know, what, some of those stats that you talk about in that, in that article, uh, you know, the, the youth unemployment, like this, is, those are the sorts of things that people pointed to 20 years ago when they were trying to figure out like, why do, you know, why I remember all the articles on why do they hate us? Like all the research yeah. on like terrorism and what drives terrorism, the idea of being like educated 25 and having no hopes, no pros economic prospects yes. is not a great, uh, you know, th that is the sort of, that's the sort of person that, that turns to violence right against a, a system um, whether that's a Chinese system or whether it's sort of a global system that has contributed to that and you know I think about revolutions and the, the writing of you know Theodore Scotchpole who's a, a very famous you know political scientist who wrote about this who talked about sort of you know these kind of collapse of, of empires and how that leads to revolution like so much of this I think doesn't bode well um, and 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 uh, when you when you look at a Chinese communist government under under Xi who, who's not going to go easily like I, you're likely to see lashing out. A number of the people who who wrote contributed that article talked about the threat to Taiwan and how that like greatly yes. increases the threat to Taiwan. But yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's there's this is not a this is not a success story, right, for yeah. the United States. This is this should be, and I'm sure you know, is is uh, something that uh, uh, you know, military and security establishment is very focused on, right? This is this is not a um, yeah. I, I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, and I think it's really, really interesting as well. And we think about, you know, we've talked in the past about how U.S. foreign policy, there's really this bipartisan consensus on getting tough on China, right? Everybody's a China hawk right now. And that's an overly simplistic response to a complicated challenge. And I think this new data suggests that the United States is going to have to be more nuanced in how it responds to China, right? You, you made a great point, like cheering the economic decline of China is also going to hurt the U.S. economy. Like we are absolutely intertwined and a, a dramatic decline in the Chinese economy is going to hit and hurt the United States. You, you hinted at this, but the idea that um, as China's economy starts to, to decline, there's going to be pressure on Xi, right? President Xi, how does he respond? He could respond in a more nationalistic way. I mean, you mentioned Taiwan. It's possible that he could use these foreign, not foreign, but these external aggression as a way of placating the public like we've seen in Russia and Ukraine, right? So I think the United States has to be careful about how it deals with China and to try to not provoke things, which doesn't mean you let China do whatever it wants, but I think it has to be a more measured, thoughtful response. 
where you still put pressure on China and you, you know, you make it clear what you agree with and disagree with. But maybe you drift away from some of the more hysteria, the more nationalistic arguments. I think you have to be careful in terms of how that you deal with China. One of the uh, the articles is by Max Boot, uh, and he talks about the Thucydides trap, right? The idea that when two great powers come close to each other, an overall balance of power, the likelihood of conflict increases. But he says what's even more dangerous is a declining revisionist power, right? So that the fact that China is now going down in some power may actually increase the likelihood that there's some sort of incident between the United States and China that could translate into conflict, right? So there's there's all of these contingencies that have started to emerge just because China's economic picture is getting a little bit more cloudy. Is that because because the the um, this is like China might see this as their last opportunity, right? If this is the, the yeah. beginning of the end, they have to act now while they have the chance. I think that's some of it, right? So the idea that's more like the state level, right? So if you're if you're thinking about the the party as a whole, but I think there's also that if we think about China as just you know a, a dictatorship, and if your president Xi may be right, it's your chance to to do something and, and still maintain greatness, that you have to do something to assert that. So I think there's a lot of incentives for maybe engaging in more risky behavior, which is not good, right? When you've got great powers battling and and all sorts of flares everywhere, I think, you know, you want cautious and restrained leaders, not nationalistic leaders. So it's a, um, yeah, I mean, I, it also brings up uh, the overreaction that Americans often have with rising powers, you know, in the, in the 1980s, it was Japan. Uh, you know, Japan was going to rule the world. And there was a yeah. similar dynamic that played out in the Japanese economy where uh, it slowed down and, and stagflation and all of that and never became that that true hegemon that many thought it was going to be. Now, I think China's bigger, more powerful. I mean, it's they're they're a more significant global player, but but maybe different than than we thought maybe a year ago. I, it's hard for me to imagine. So as I, if, I mean, if the, if these predictions play out, if China, you know, in 80 years ha, has lost 40% of its population, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine a country that is now, you know, as we've talked about becoming increasingly sort of belligerent and, and, you know, pushing to establish itself as an equal player, um, you know, with the United States. And it's hard for me to imagine a country going from where China is now with the aspirations that China has now to a country half its, you know, population is cut in half. Its economy is, is over an 80 year period. It's hard for me to imagine that happening smoothly or peacefully or like in any sort of, uh, gentle transition. Right. I mean, it, it just, it, 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 uh, uh, portends a, a very turbulent, you know, 80, 75 years in, in China. I mean, is there any way under the current, I mean, I, there is a way, right? I mean, there's a way in which um, uh, the 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 communist regime is, you know, in some way. But I was going to say is overthrown, um, yeah. and and you have a trip. But even that then is not. It, that's that's turbulent. Like it's hard for me to imagine a situation in which China looks anything like it does, you know, in in 75 years because of of what what we're seeing coming down the the road, unless policies and somehow ch change dramatically in a way that uh, that, you know, boost the birth rate or, or whatever. This is such a good point, right? Because the long term 
compromise in China has been, we're going to give you economic growth, right? You don't get political rights, uh, but we're going to continue to have growth rates, 8, 10, 12%, right? And so, so you don't have, you know, you don't have political rights, but boy, your, your economic situation is going to be transformed. Well, if you have a big group of 18 to 24 year olds who feel like their political future, their economic future is lousy, they're no longer going to be willing to abide by that compromise. And I think you're right to suggest that there are going to be political ramifications for this. And 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 President Xi has done more in terms of like political control than good economic governance. Now yeah. you go back to Deng Xiaoping, right? In the early eight stages of China's economic growth is he said, let's let the market win, right? Let's let the market go and let's let people live better lives. And uh, President Xi has, has been more about political control. And yeah, no, I, I, th- I think you're right to say that there are going to be a lot of revolutionary impulses within China. And it's hard to know how that all plays out. Is, is that an argument for, uh, I, I mean, th- th- this is the always the challenge of, of yeah. global politics and international relations is, is weighing the sort of long term versus the short term, right? I mean, this is the, the whole, the tension between, you know, liberals and realists and all yeah. sorts of other stuff as well. But this, I mean, this, it feels like that's a debate that we're going to have to really uh, think about over the next decade or, you know, 20 years, because, you know, a, a, a China invading Taiwan, a China who's on the rise invading Taiwan might look very differently than, I mean, it might look exactly the same as a China who's in decline invading Taiwan, but the implications yeah. or the long-term importance of reacting might look quite different, right? If it's a China in decline and the system is not likely to, the, the communist system is not likely to, to last, an invasion of Taiwan is not good, but it might not require, the, or it might, right. the, the wisest response might not be sort of aggressive war to prevent that, right? Whereas if it's yeah. China rising. And so th- those nuances of understanding the motivations and the long-term sort of forecasts become really important. And, and um, I, you know, I don't know how you navigate that, but it feels like that's an important thing for policymakers to be thinking about as they react to China. Is this a is this the action of a rising China or is this an act of a, of a declining China? Um, and, and how does that have an impact on how we respond? And and does the American domestic political system allow for a leader to make those sort of reasoned yeah. and cautioned, cautious and nuanced responses? Or are they pressured to just be the nationalist, right? And and uh, the China hawk, and that which means it would be hard to do that. And you may provoke something that uh, that you actually don't want. That's why you've spoken out against democracy for a really long time, <laughs> right. right? Because it's That's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, I know we got to wrap up soon, but one other thought is, is, you know, reading about all this made me think about the American economy and the strength of the American economy and the innovative nature of the American economy and, and how the biggest problem for the United States is our political politics, right? If we could just get yeah. out of our way and have reasonable, normal politics, the American economy is so dynamic and so big and so powerful. Um, you know, it is really well positioned for the 21st century. Um, and it, it is sort of, we we are the ones that are the biggest problems for our own success. And that's not the case for China. China has some some also some much more daunting problems. I think if you're thinking about, do you pick the American future or the Chinese future right now? I think a lot of people might pick America or maybe even India, right? India has to be happy about these developments as well. India, who just landed on the moon, right? Yes, uh, like this week. Yes. I mean, so yeah, it's it's that it'll be really fascinating to see. You know, if you talk about how uh, American policymakers or the American public sort of tends to overreact to rising powers, it'll be fascinating to see. You know, or in in twenty years, are we talking about India the way that we've been talking about China? 
A hundred percent. So yeah, no, this is, this is, well, this is probably a good point to wrap up. Phil, you want to remind everybody how they can stay connected and now they're going to be so excited. They're going to want to go to the webpage and read all those things. Yeah. So the politics lab.com and you, and you can find there, if you click on this week's episode, um, the, this Chris Anunu piece in the New York times that we talked about the, the Brownstein piece from the Atlantic that we talked about. Um, uh, there's an Atlantic art Atlantic article about the 14th amendment that I put up on, on there. And then, uh, um, an article about the ICC, but also this on this China topic, the article that Bill mentioned that has you know eight or ten different sort of scholars who give their take on China's uh, changing uh, demographics and economics. That that article is linked as well. And those are little short pieces. It's kind of fun to get a bunch of different perspectives um, in, in one article. So that's all at thepoliticslab.com. That's fantastic. Is your phone still ringing, Phil? Not anymore. Not anymore. Oh, that's a good Just sign. That's a good sign for your rings. mental health. <laughs> yes. I don't like it when my phone rings. I don't I don't like talking on the phone. <laughs> All right, I'll see you next week, Phil. All right, bye Bill. Bye Phil.